Hello, this is the 18th episode of Nkata Podcast Dots of Thoughts. And my name is Emeko Kereke. I'm a visual artist, photographer, writer, filmmaker, but also I have my academic side. I'm a scholar and my work is a hyphen of artistic and pedagogical academic projects and interventions. If you have been following this podcast, you already know what it's about. But if this is your first time, you're joining us for the first time, or you stumbled on the podcast for the first time, this is one of the two shows that make up a podcast platform that I host and produce as well, and it's called Nkata Podcast. Well, the other podcast is called Art and Processes. But Dust of Thoughts Podcast is a space that allows me to share inspiring thoughts, So essentially, it's a space where I try to expand or make something out of ideas, thoughts, inklings that leave remarkable impressions. So it could be something that was inspired by a conversation with someone, something I read, heard, listened to, or even a project that I took part in. But again, at the center of it is articulating the idea of encounter when people come together in a context of a a shared intent or intention what are the processes for which they arrive as saying that we have done something collectively and this episode largely draws from that so in may 2023 i had a residency project in tangier morocco in collaboration with a friend and colleague Matangi Krishnamurti, who is an anthropologist of India. So, we were in Tangier to work on a project about migration, movement, bodies, to think together from this place. First of all, to give you a sense of who Matangi is, she is currently Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Indian Institute for Technology, Madras. In the past years, her research areas of interest include the anthropology of work, biopolitics, gender and sexual studies and urban studies. Her book, 1-800 Worlds, The Making of the Indian Call Center Economy, published by Oxford University Press in 2018, chronicles the labor practices, life worlds and media atmospheres of Indian call center workers. You know, basically it's anthropology, but she's also very much interested in the idea of the postmodern. And this is where we find a synergy. And so I met Mathangi in Chennai when I was there for the Chennai Photo Biennale. I was invited to take part in a conference that was organized by the Chennai Photo Biennale. And we met. And since then, you know, we stayed friends. And throughout the COVID period, we continued to work together. As of today, we have founded a collective together called Alaila. And it is within this context of the collective that we decided to work together in Tangier. We were invited by this organization called the Minority Globe. We went out there, spent three weeks, and within the context of our research and our working and thinking together, we also met the Moroccan anthropologist Abdel Majid Hanoum. But we met him before. <laughs> We met him in person. While I was preparing for this project and was researching and collecting 
everything that we would need for thinking together and doing this project in Tangier, uh, I came across this book called Living Tangier because we wanted to do work around movement and bodies, but also the city, the city that serves as the incubator or as the enabler, or in the case of Tangier and the politics of it, that serves as the border that stops the presence of these migrant bodies. Presence in the sense that that intention to cross over, all of that, all of those convolutions, all of those conflations, you know, takes place in Tangier. All right, so let me give you a glimpse of what the book is about from the abstract. So since the early 1990s, new migratory patterns have been emerging in the southern Mediterranean. Here, a large number of West Africans and young Moroccans, including minors, make daily attempts to cross to Europe. The Moroccan city of Tangier, because of its proximity to Spain, is one of the main getaways for this migratory movement. It has also become a magnet for middle and working class Europeans seeking a more comfortable life. Based on extensive fieldwork, Living Tangier examines the dynamics of transitional migration in a major city of the global south and studies African illegal migration to Europe and European legal migration to Morocco. Looking at the itineraries of Europeans, West Africans, and Moroccan children and youth, their strategies for crossing, their motivations, their dreams, their hopes, and their everyday experiences. In the process, Abdel Majid Hanoum examines how Moroccan society has been affected by the flows of migrants from both West Africa and Europe, focusing on race relations and analyzing issues related to citizenship and social inequality. Living Tangier considers what makes the city one of the most attractive for migrants, preparing to cross to Europe and illustrates not only how migrants live in the city, but also how they leave the city, how they experience it, encounter its people, and engage its culture, walk its streets, and participate in its event. So that's a glimpse into this book, and it was very, very insightful and helpful for our research. So I read the book three days to the time that I took off from Berlin to go to Tangier, and Mathangi picked up the book while we were in Tangier, and because she was a fast reader, she basically finished it in a, almost like a half a day, I think, or a day. This book really helped us to understand the reality of Tangier. It was also able to historicize it for us, to open up our views without necessarily keeping it peripheral or shallow. It was very much drawn from his own personal experience and personal commitment to the project, to Tangier, given that he also was one of those kids. I mean, he came from that demography of kids who eventually would become the Haraga kids, as we will um, learn from the conversation we're going to have with him. But then, coincidentally, he was also traveling in Morocco, and he was in Tangier. Towards the time we were leaving, and we had the opportunity to meet with him, the conversation that you are going to listen to in this podcast transpired when we eventually sat down with him to discuss the book. But before that, Matangi and I have had so much crucial, remarkable conversations and experiences about the city. We have taken our body and our presence to many corners of the city. We have allowed ourselves to soak in the experiences, the vibes and people to some extent because we were there for only three weeks. But we have also 
generated our own thoughts. So this podcast is an attempt to extract from the experiences of our time in Tangier. Based out of Tangier? Yeah, uh, I live here because, like, I have a long history with, with Tangier. <laughs> so, so uh, I got a place here. So basically, my home you know, is here in many ways. Is it in the still in the the alley of the devils? I wish. I, I wish. No? It, no, I wish that. Uh, have you seen that neighborhood? No. Oh, it's a beautiful neighborhood. They have like um, the Spanish and Italian houses. They're really, really nice. So, I mean, this is just a formal way of saying, you know, okay. thank you for joining us in this conversation. This is something that Emeka and I have been talking about in your absentia as if we are in conversation with you almost. So, this is quite serendipitous and wonderful. Uh, how do I address you? Majid uh, Hanou. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your concerns as you're doing research? This is clearly something you've been doing for a very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, a set of central concerns that you think inform mm -hmm. both you as a Moroccan but also as an anthropologist. Yeah, um, I think the, the main concern that I have in my research, I, uh, I try to work on uh, vulnerable marginalized population. Um, so I, I did that like in historical work really about colonized people and condition and that, that they lived in. Uh, try to really make that story a little bit more now and more vivid also because there's a lot of distortion about like colonial history in Algeria and in Morocco as well. Uh, so then I moved to uh, more ethnographic work and uh, so my concern again is really about like the most in my view, the most marginalized population. And that's basically like uh, African migrants to Europe. And when I say African migrants to Europe, I, I mean like sub-Saharan uh, Africans and Moroccans as well, you know. So that's basically what informs my, my, my research. I do connect that to myself in many ways, you know. That's why I think I get some passion about doing it because it's an arduous work. It's really, it's a, it's a very, very difficult work to do. The connection that I make with myself is pretty much the fact that I myself was from, you know, really a poor neighborhood, you know, I grew up in poverty. Uh, I also experienced privileged life, I mean, I, I, should, I shouldn't just, uh, you know, claim, you know, one thing and not the other. And then the youth of my generation uh, had that concern, including myself, we had that concern, you know, to leave, you know, that was really kind of so pressing and so urgent and so overwhelming as a, as, a, as a desire. So I experienced that and that's most likely that's what made me leave, you know. Um, and then, then my own condition as a migrant, because I do consider myself as a migrant, I don't consider myself as a cosmo cosmopolis, you know, this fancy word. Yeah? Here, if you drown, I can save you. No problem. 
mean, I mean, it's a beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. Hey, people are see. We were wrong. They're all swimming. You were speaking about how your position as a migrant also allows you to connect to your work yeah, and so, not a cosmopolitan. Yeah, so yeah, so I said that uh, I do also like to share the migrant condition despite the few privileges that I enjoy clearly. And that allows me to connect again with uh, the population I work with. So in many ways, you know, working on this population is also like trying to understand a part of myself as well. You know, But I don't want to be... What's, what's the term, egoistic or whatever the term is. I mean, like the work is really about them, you know, not about, about me. Being about them also helps me about, you know, to understand myself, you know, not the other way around, basically. The one thing that we've discussed um, a lot is also your, your approach. I remember that reading the book, yeah. I saw the introduction. I mean, Mathangi it will be used to this because she's an anthropologist and so she knows. Mm. But for me, it struck me as very, very, very compelling that you took your time to really elaborate on the process and saying you made interviews with them and everything but when and you actually spent time with them and you even numbered you know said how many people you 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 worked with and also your process when the um, recorder came in when it left you know or and how that was part of facilitating the the, the connection but then reading the book you know it's very tactile like the, the words are actually you could tell that it felt like that it's really coming from a place of i have spent time with you know uh-huh. and 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 like you said you know it's about them uh-huh. but again one can also see clearly your position uh-huh. uh, in it so it'd be nice to sort of like speak a little bit more on you know what the process was like for you especially because it was a research that was done over many years right yeah, so right. process really started in 2008 uh, i remember i spent uh, that summer here the, uh, at that time the city that we are in right now w- was quite different you know at least like as far as these populations are concerned uh, there were more there were more uh, haraga meaning moroccan migrants or would-be migrants and then, of course, they were more like you know, sub-Saharan Africans, usually at that time from West Africa. And that has drastically changed now. Uh, you don't see the Haraga anymore. And uh, there are very, very few sub-Saharan Africans right now because there are other places where they go to. So when I started in 2008, I mean, I started with um, Moroccan Haraga. Uh, and they were usually like really kind of children between the age of six and the age of 16. And it was easy to meet them. Uh, usually you meet them at the port. And uh, it was not easy to approach them. Actually, it was the other way around. It was they approach you. Usually they ask you for for money. So that's that's how the, the process started. When... When I start talking to them, of course, I mean, like, they could be my, my children at that time in 2018. So there are this um, generation gap. But at the same time, like, their background, I, I, I knew very, very well, you know. That's the background of the Shanti town uh, in Morocco. As a matter of fact, one time, I met at least one kid who was exactly from my, from my neighborhood, you know. Uh, that's how it started, and really it started, like... Uh, like conversations, it was not. I didn't have like a set of, of questions to ask them. 
mainly because my approach was really just to do what Clifford Gaze again says, deep hanging out, you know, to spend as much time with them as, as possible, to just let them talk, you not know, freely. And of course, I mean, you know, they ask me questions, but they also ask them questions. But my questions were not kind of like the sociological type of questions, like, you know, fishing for specific information. I really just want to, the, you know, the conversation to be quite open, you know, and of course, I mean, I take notes sometimes. I used to tape record, but then I realized that the recording was a problem because <laughs> usually when, when you try to record them, uh, they start kind of uh, holding back, you know, and they start kind of censoring themselves. So they speak, there are certain things that they don't speak about in front of the microphone. So I got, I got rid of the, of the tape recorder and we just start talking, you know. So I spent that summer there, but I keep coming. I came back uh, uh, summer 2009, again summer 2010, and of course, I mean 2010, 2011, uh, I spent that year here. That was like uh, the fact that I had this uh, whole year, you know, just to spend with kids. Most of them by that time I knew very well. And one of the the major things that city had at that time that it didn't have now. It had that port that was quite open, you know, to the migrants. And they used to hang out there, basically. I remember, usually like during the day, they are asleep, especially in the morning. Uh, usually when you catch them at night, uh, when I say at night, usually around eight, nine o'clock, you can talk to them from eight, nine, till four o'clock in the morning, which I used to do. Uh, not only talk to them, but they also talk to each other. You see what I mean? It was not... It didn't have that um, group dynamic of me, the anthropologist or the ethnographer, and this group that I'm trying to kind of interrogate. It, it really didn't have that at all. Uh, it was just like in a group that changes, of course, because like some of sometimes, as I said in the book, I come and then they tell me so and so, you know, uh, exiled. You know, that's the expression they say, "trrb." You know, uh, you know, new kids would come and. You know, one or two would disappear, you don't see them anymore, either because they left to Europe or they went back home. The group dynamic had something very, very interesting that I talk about in my book, this modern separation between children and adults. You know, it's, it's something very, very modern, you know. Within the group, there was no such separation, really. I mean, like, they talk and they make jokes about each other and so forth because the city was very dangerous you know i don't know that that's an exaggeration most likely it's not you know it was very dangerous really at night because of the bullies you know haggara we call them in moroccan arabic and and also the police so the the older one uh, they serve as protectors you know including myself as a matter of fact they can see you that way but besides that, the, the, there was kind of a real democracy, like within that group, meaning like everybody basically is, uh, you know, is equal to everybody in terms of, you know, talking and and and, and joking and so forth, you know. Mm -hmm. When I go back home, I do different work, you know. Basically, I take notes, you know. I I have a great memory, basically, which had to do with the fact that when I was a student here, like really, like primary school and also like high school, uh, I was very interested in Arabic literature. I used to uh, learn a lot of poems by heart and also like um, prose, you know, like really this beautiful text, you know. So I immediately, as soon as I get home, I, I write my interviews and so forth, you know. 
So that's basically the process. The process of thinking all of that, I, I didn't do it in, in, in the field. Meaning like all this concept that I talk about or like, you know, separation between adults and, 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 and children or, or, or race, the concepts of race or, I don't know, illegality, all the stuff that I talk about in the book as concepts, that came out later, like when, you know, I went back and I started reading like you know, other ethnographies, but also other books about, you know, social theory, anthropological theories and so forth, you know. Some of the stuff that were said that you didn't write them down, something that you didn't put down, either because somehow you didn't think it was important or just you forgot, you know. So it comes back to your mind, like, you know, throughout that process of thinking, really conceptualizing the projects. There is a way that you wrote the book, the entire book, that really accounts for your presence every point in time. Yeah. It's almost like in a, in a very tactile way. I keep yeah. coming back to this word, tactile. Like, yeah. I keep thinking at the back end all the time when I'm reading. You know, you've talked about how much of the book comes also from your own personal experience. Uh, uh, uh. But you also mentioned that those kids are also somehow your mm -mm. reality at some point. Yeah, yeah. So um, is it possible to sort of like talk about how that has facilitated you being there in body mm -hmm. and also how that helped to um, say maybe um, direct your, the way you move between them and to some extent that they were able to trust you, that they were able mm -hmm. to, you know, forget that you were there, they were mm -hmm. able to forget that, you know, you were doing this, because that's actually what the sense we, we get from the book, that at some point, mm -hmm. they just forgot that you are not actually mm -hmm. one of them, and you were able to sort of like, and yet you were able to manage that all through while, while you were with them. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking yeah. as you were speaking, uh -huh. You know, I, the part where you speak about the category of the child being uh, a product of European modernity uh, is so compelling. Uh, and so adding to Emeka's question, uh, I also want to know, you know, it's, it's not uh, a small thing to decide to do work with children uh, uh, for an ethnographer. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's fraught with so many considerations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's correct. And in your disposition, then how did your own understanding of children that you were working with move uh, uh, for you as well, just yeah, to yeah. add that. Well, th there are two aspects to this question. I mean, second one, which is linked to the first one, of course. Uh, the question of children. When, when this phenomena of harraga, uh, harraga at that time really meant pretty much like very young people, including like children who, who tried to cross. When it came out, late 1990s and early 2000, it was quite sensational. In Morocco, it's, uh, people would just talk about Haraga in kind of sensational way, about these like unbelievable children that cross to Europe and get under the buses and so forth. So that in itself, I mean, it was a reason why I got involved in that. That's why I started the chapter by citation of Nietzsche, saying my brother, what can uh, the child do that even the lion cannot do? It, it was quite shocking to me, but also to Moroccan society as well. You know, I remember my sisters would talk about that, and everybody would talk about that. At that time. They wanted to understand that. Uh, the other part that I said, and it really should be just, you know, not the main reason. You know, I mean, like, it's a reason, but not really the most decisive one. It's, uh, as I said earlier, the fact that I did identify with children, you know, because by the time I was 16, I didn't leave that condition anymore, mainly also thanks to migration. My uh, economic condition has really drastically changed because my, my father 
moved to France and, and, and he did very well for himself and so forth. But that time period, you know, till age of nine, ten, I did see myself like myself. And as a matter of fact, when I look at my pictures, like at that time, I, I used to dress like that as well. So what helped me connect with them is the fact that they were also from like really my social background, you know, that I could I could speak their language, you know. Even though, as I said, like in the book, that their social world is not really mine and so forth, but I had to connect with them on on, on something so fundamental to them. And it's not something that I had to work on. It's something that really happened spontaneously, most likely because of my memory was triggered and they could go back to, you know, to that mindset when I was like nine or when I was eight years old. And you could feel that, you know, because children are extremely perceptive and intuitive, you know. Uh, they can feel everything. There are times when it really surprised me when I was there. It surprised me like how they could, either because I... I went away or because, you know, uh, I was busy. So I would not go there for a few days. And then I go and then, the, you know, they keep asking, no, uh, Ami. The other they say Ami or they say Ustaz. Ami, it means uncle. It has to do a little bit with age, of course, but it's an expression that, like, that people use. You know, it's like saying brother in some ways. And Ustaz is just like... It's also an expression that's quite common these days. It's Miss Professor, but it really, officially it's Miss Professor. But it's used to, not in, not in the sense of sir, it's just some kind of title that really marks respect, but it doesn't mark distance, you know. Who says, where have you been? We haven't seen you in a few days. And, all. and that quite surprised me. There are times when it really feels like family. I shared meals with them, especially in uh, dinners. And, uh, usually I, I would buy it, actually. So basically what I'm saying here is like, you know, sometimes I said that to my students, I said, like, I can tell you what to do, you know. You know, we can read books about field work and field notes and journals and all that. But most likely it's not going to help you a lot because once you are there, the, every situation is completely different, you know, and you can click and you can not click. Language is important. It helps you, you know. But there are other factors, including like your own personality, whether like you can inspire trust or not, you know. The, the work, as I describe in my book, it was really tiring. It was extremely tiring. Uh, and at the same time, it was really a delight to work with the kids. Meaning like enjoyable, even in the kind of uh, conversations we had or the kind of jokes they make or the kind of, you know, events sometimes the you know the invite me to go to and so forth you know and one of the things i've been i, I think about in a lot in intellectual acad academic work is the the distance the, the disparity between you know when people who have not lived something you know but they go to do this field work because they feel like a certain form of empathy towards that uh, yeah, that yeah. and then they go to do it yeah um you know, how that work comes out uh -huh. as opposed to someone who every time they are there, uh -huh. they're constantly tapping into uh -huh. something they have lived. And there's a sort of a language uh -huh. uh, within the level of, you know, connecting uh -huh. that you cannot really, you know, <laughs> explain, but you can somehow see it in the work come out. So I've always been interested in um, artists, intellectuals who, uh -huh. um, for lack of a better word, first of all, grew up like street and then slowly work their way into the academia uh -huh. and the kind of work they make uh -huh. and how that often relies on the experiences they had from outside the academia, actually. I don't know if you uh, can relate with this, uh, Mathangi. 
it's, it's a category that's so much debated uh-huh. even sort of in intellectual circles the idea was who gets to do what work uh-huh. right and and this category of the native ethnographer uh, yeah. in a way but what you are talking about america is also very specific right the idea that access to academia is such a guarded fort Mm-mm, that's correct right mm-hmm. and people who are able to make it through those kinds of garrisons mm-hmm. right where do we make a case for life experiences constitute with it's something that you and i have debated a lot which mm-hmm. is theory in the global north uh, yeah. experience in the global south uh-huh. and then you map one onto the other uh-huh. and this has been the kind of flow of uh-huh. a neo colonial knowledge mechanism yeah, yeah. so i completely know exactly where you're coming from in this mm-hmm. and in a sense perhaps i wanted to also talk to you then about doing this thing back and forth uh-huh. How does it feel to then translate it? Uh, back and forth between, between the, the experience here, and the academia. Experience and academia. Uh-huh. How does it feel to translate it then for, I can see it in yeah. various parts of the book, yeah. for a North American anthropological yeah. audience partly, uh-huh. but I must say what really distinguishes uh-huh. Living Tanger for us really is uh-huh. how I read it in two sittings. Two days, back to back in a sense. So besides that, and Emeka and I had a conversation about the introduction and I said, yes, this is familiar. I can see how setting it up in relation to conversations is a practice I'm familiar with. But how you write the fieldwork in that fashion, how does it feel to translate it? What, you know, the anthropologist process of going back and writing? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great question as well. Uh, So, uh, there are two process really of writing you know there is the first one when basically you just had these conversations and then you write them down it seems the easy one actually it's very interesting you said that because just yesterday i was looking at these notes because uh, there are lots of stuff you don't include every interview every uh, description that you wrote when you just had the interview or you just saw what you what what you described course you have to do some editing and you publish as is you know and they said like it would really <laughs> make maybe a greater book because at least it, it would not have this kind of like intellectual like uh, you know jargon sometimes concepts you know that <laughs> 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 yeah. to, to use a, a, a metaphor of an advisor of mine actually said it's like what's this jargon that and that you know you see it's like like hair on a soup you know so <laughs> so <laughs> It's a very powerful image. I'm never going to be able to forget that when I'm writing now. So there's that. And then there's the second part, which is basically usually that like when you go back and then you have to read more and you have to read some stuff about, as I said earlier, about concepts, about theories, about about other ethnographies that people have done some rest. And that's a second, you know, type of process that adds to the first one, you know. Because then you are doing something quite different. You are interpreting yourself in many ways, you know. You are reading your notes, and as if those notes cannot make sense by themselves, you know. So you are trying to give them a new a new sense, you know. Because anthropology, I mean, it has these characteristics of you cannot just write, you know, specifically or locally. You have to engage with people who did, you know, that type of work. When I had to read, you know, and of course, I mean, I had to kind of like conceptualize. Uh, it was also marked by a personal experience that I don't talk about in, in the book, that maybe it did help me to write the way I did. And that experience, because the book was written very fast. I mean, I did research for quite a long time. 
but because of teaching, but also because of other projects that I was doing, I, I didn't get to it till, till I had this experience that was like on February 9th, you know, 2017. I had a blood clot, you know, that was going to my brain. And uh, I was going to have exactly the same experience that Rolf Trouillou had, you know. They even caught us a little bit late, as a matter of fact, you know. So the chances to get it out were like 50%, you know. So if I waited just a few days or maybe a week or two weeks, maybe it would have been too late. And then, of course, I, I, had, to, I had to go through a surgery too, as a matter of fact. One of them was to get the blood clot out, you know, and the second one was really to kind of to close the heart that created the blood clot, basically. I had a PFO. PFO is a, no, no. Is a small, you know, it's a small hole in the heart that everybody has when they are just born. But the, the heart gets closed as soon as the baby starts breathing. But 25% of the population of the Earth uh, don't have the chance. So basically the, the hole stays open. And that may cause you know, a blood clot, you know. So most of people don't know it. Most of people have normal lives. Until um, something happens and then they realize like, wow, you know. Then. So, so I, I did have that experience that was, it, it was extremely painful. As a matter of fact, it was, you know, the only time that you really have to face, you know, the possibility of your death. Immediately after, I, it took me three months to recover. Immediately after I recovered, in March, I remember. So I went back to, to those notes. Before July 4th, I was pretty much done with the manuscript, you know. Uh, I work on the concept of death now. I mean, the death of migrants, as a matter of fact. So when, when you have an experience like that, you know, I mean, of course, some people have much closer experience with death than the one I had, but it's still, it helps you put perspective uh, on things, you know, including on the kind of work you do, I mean, the kind of life you, you have, kind of relationships you have with other people and so forth. So I went back to the, you know, to the project, so I finished it, you know, as I said, and then I was left with something that in many ways prompted me to finish early, but I didn't deal with it, you know, which is basically the concept of death, you know, uh, that I'm working on now. Like, I mean, I think I do mention in the book that this type of my, uh, migration is, is characterized by a high rate of death. Die drowning, they die at the hand of the police, uh, they die in the desert, you know, uh, they die uh, in the streets sometimes, you know, whenever there is gangs, um, violence, and uh, so that, that topic itself came from this experience, as I said. Reading the book, one can see that there is a, a lot of care, attention, and, you know, I, 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 would, I would come across all the time these feelers. There are many books that I've read that is able to sort of like pull that off where you use like one sentence feelers to communicate a certain kind of emotion, but also to show exactly where you are at that point in time. I'll give an example. There's this passage where you said that, or this part where you said that um, one of the guys you were speaking with uh, was calling, saying something like Azizos, you know, yeah, yeah, uh -huh. yeah, and then he said it and he laughed. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. And then, you know, as an extension of that sentence, you said something like, 
he laughed like to invite laughter from yeah, you right. and at that point in time i could see exactly uh, the awkwardness of that situation right. how you are sort of like positioned uh, like thinking this is not funny but yeah. you were you were also able to communicate it in, in a way that yeah. you can see his position but you can also see yeah. your your sympathy mm-hmm. with that position mm-hmm. so there's a there's a level of emotion there but there's also there's a level of distance yeah, yeah. and this is something that i saw yeah. that you were using this one sentence way of sort of like communicating this which I've, i found very 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 interesting because also the book is very brief in the sense but very expansive you can read it you can read into in between the lines a lot and that's 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 amazing yeah thank you following up from that i think the fact of there there was something remaining mm-hmm. especially when you spoke about mm-hmm. migrants own sense or mm. not sense of death mm-hmm. also gave me a sense that this was something that mm. you had put away mm-hmm. to right. think about later right. mm-hmm. I- in mm-hmm. a way so would it be possible for you to tell us how you're thinking about it now because i know you're also in the middle of field uh, work uh, or at the end of it yeah what uh, you've been working on and how you're thinking about it after so many years as well it, yeah I, i'm at the beginning of it because the phenomena of death of my of migrants it can be tackled ethnographically from different angles you know i'm in tangier so i go to fnidq i haven't gone to wisda yet but i have to go to wisda and nador uh, next month uh, june and july i'm not thinking about it conceptually you know as a matter of fact i even avoid reading about i mean there are few not a lot you know stuff about death a uh, few by by very very few by uh, anthropologists there are few by you know philosophers you know So I, I try not to read about that. So as I said, like I, I do it ethnographically, meaning like it has different aspects. One of them is you interview the migrants themselves about death. You know, you, you get a little bit disappointed in the response because there aren't many. You know, the responses are just a couple, really a couple of sentences, <laughs> sentences. You know, which is basically. you know when you ask about the possibility that the person may die in sea they would tell you well if god decide, has decided that to abate you know uh, or another answer close to this as matter of fact they would tell you that um if it's my destiny you know abate so that's really the answers that 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 you get but there are different aspects you know how to, different ways how how I do this one of them is you talk to friends of the deceased you know because then it's not really an, an abstract because that is an abstract and not for children and for young people more than for us you know but w- when a young person or even a child is hit with news of the death of his friend they have completely different take on it you know so meaning like the they don't just see it as a concept they see it as really something that, that happens close and that may even happen to them as well but there aren't many people you whose friends has passed away in sea so what you do is like you also look at um the how the ngos talk about that itself how the newspapers talk about uh, about that itself uh how the eu agencies talk about it and it's very interesting on this aspect because usually they really talk about that as a number you know they don't talk i mean just like you know 19 migrants died today 
on their way to Tarifa. So th th there are no faces, no narratives, nothing. But that in itself is very, very important. That's in it there's an ethnography to do there as well on, on this concept of death or this issue of death as, as a number. And then we have since uh, June 24th, 2022, we have uh, really kind of like a new phenomenon, which is basically like the, the families of the deceased, you know, or they don't even call themselves the family of the deceased. I mean, they call themselves the, the family of the missing. Uh, I say the deceased because the migrants themselves say deceased, you know. And they say that's because when the migrants crosses, if they don't hear two or three days maximum, the migrants conclude that the person is dead, you know. But the families, of course, I mean, they have this hope that, that the person may be just missing, like they may come, they may be just, you know, they have not called back, etc., etc. Et so that itself is another population. It's really a new population to, to you know, to the field work on. And that's what I will do next month and the month after, meaning June and July. And then uh, there is another aspect, because that's why I said this is just the beginning. I have to do it also, like, in, in southern Spain and in southern Italy as well. In the book, you, I, I noticed that you keep coming back to try to delineate and return to this idea of the death. Mm -hmm. Since we've been moving around in Tangier here as well, we've been meeting some migrants and we've been discussing to, with them. And one thing that we keep coming back to is to understand really what makes one want to cross despite mm -hmm everything you know everyone have their, their take on it i think that the, the tangier that we've come that we've met now is a tangier of 2023 and that's a lot has that's shifted especially you also touched on the fact that the narrative was shifting you know perhaps i don't know what how you've experienced tangier now in relation to especially because you grounded it on all of this work uh, within a tangier that is also having this neoliberal dynamics to it you coming back here now i don't know if you've seen some shifts already that you think okay perhaps tending towards what you are thinking or deviating from that uh, no there is a there is a huge shift compared to even 2015 2014 uh little alone when i was doing really like the intensive field work i was doing in 2011 it's quite drastic. The first thing that changes almost everything about migrants here in Tangier is the fact that the, the, the port moved to Qusar uh, which is 35 minutes away from here. And then this port, I mean, basically like it's a touristic port. It's impossible to cross from this port the way it used to before, you know. I mean, Tangier is not, is not the gate that it used to be anymore because of this change of course to Laqsar Sgheer. Laqsar Sgheer, I mean in Laqsar Sgheer you find more migrants. I mean the migrants that used to come here, they go there now. Even though like the security is extremely tight, you know. But there are more possibilities there because you have these ships that are commercial uh, that if you, if you are lucky or if you are really kind of extremely intelligent to get to one of them, you may have the chance to, you know, to cross. There are a number of reasons why the port has changed. Uh, one of the reasons, not the reason, was also to kind of clean up the city from the migrants. And that has worked quite well. 
So there are very, very few migrants compared to before 2016. Uh, there are some events that also happened. As a matter of fact, one of them happened in 2017 when uh, a kid died under a tourist uh, bus. It was in downtown, like next to the Cornish, actually. And that created really kind of a shock that made the authorities more concerned about kids hanging out in the city. You know? So the, the situation is very different from what I describe in my book right now. But it doesn't mean that, that the problem was solved. The problem was just relocated somewhere else to Qasr Sghir and then to Fnidq, especially in the mountains of Fnidq where you have like forests and you have like really like camps of migrants living in the forest. And also like the, uh, the migrants risk really kind of harsh prison sentences now if, if they are caught there, you know, up to three years, you know. Yet at the same time, I mean, in Tangier, you still have like few and you still have like people who cross from Tangier, but they cross a little bit differently, usually through smugglers, you know. And uh, a smuggler costs 3,600 euro. It's sometimes very, very expensive for migrants, you know. And therefore, because it's expensive, it's a rare occurrence. You know, not many migrants can afford that much money to cross. In which case, in light of, you know, what you've been telling us over your long years of chronicling these shifts, in your estimation, what would you say is the current narrative about Tonje? What is Tonje now? Mm-hmm. It's something that we have been attempting from various aspects. It's what Emeka has called a multiplex of a certain kind. It presents certain possibilities, but no sureties. What do you think is the current narrative of Tonje? Especially, sorry, especially because, you know, thinking about it now when you said that the problem has moved away. So it is also part of that shifting narrative of Tonje. But we can also think of that you know, bring in the possibility that there is a void now, which, uh-huh. which now allows things to take different, happen in, in a, like in a multiplex way. Uh-huh. Where, and this is something we've experienced also that, um, everywhere we go, mm-hmm. we meet some migrants, and each and every one of them have a different narrative. Now, mm-hmm. we've met a migrant who is the archetypal expert. You know, uh-huh. he and and everyone says he is the only one. Out of everyone, he's a Nigerian uh-huh. who has made it in Tangier. Uh-huh. And they say, like, there's no one else because he works at a tech company here. Uh-huh. And he was able to invite his mother uh-huh. from Nigeria uh-huh. to visit him for two weeks and uh-huh. then go back. Uh-huh. And that is only one strand. But he tells you also that he comes from that place of when he didn't have papers and uh-huh. all of that. Uh-huh. And that's just one. So many tangents to it. Yeah. So I, I wonder how you're thinking about you know, all of that now. I don't know whether there's just one narrative for, for Tangier. I'm sure that there must be several, depending on to whom you are talking, you know. Uh, I think the official narrative, from what I can, I can conclude from the press, from even like, you know, political statements by officials and so forth, about Tangier, it's really, it's, it's, it's a city uh, that they want to put at the, forefront you know of morocco you know sometimes you know people use the, the concept miroir or mirror you know this is basically like and therefore the, this mirror that looks at to europe it doesn't look to africa as a matter of fact it turns its back to africa it needs to be as european as it can be 
and therefore you can see i mean like most likely tangier is the most europeanized city you know as a matter of fact someone said that long time ago in 19th century miege a uh, historian but now is more than uh, than before you can see that like in the building you can see that in the restaurants you can see that even in the type of migrants because i use the word migrants to include not only sub saharan africans anybody who comes here you know for a living whether they are from sweden or from the uk or from wherever you know so again it's a city that wants to present as really like, you know the face you know that first one that you see when you come from Europe, therefore it's as European as, as, as it can be. And as I said, like it's European in, in its architecture. It's, as a matter of fact, it's very interesting because even the Qasba, became, the Qasba which was like the most like traditional, authentic part of the city, itself has become very Europeanized in two ways. One, it has become really an orientalist, you know, uh, part of the city that corresponds to that concept of uh, the oriental, you know, house that we can read about or sometimes what, uh, look at on paintings and, uh, and so forth. And second, it's populated by really usually like privileged, you know, Europeans. Most of them are French. That's one narrative and they think, in my view, it's really the most important one because it's the official one associated with government, with state, and, and so forth. And then, of course, you have other uh, narratives about city as a hub for culture and arts and, and so forth. You have that as well. And uh, people who have this kind of narrative, usually they are artists themselves, and they kind of connect the presence of the city to its past with this, like, famous artist that, that passed by here, you know. Picasso, Matisse, uh, Monet, etc. That's why you find there is a um, kind of proliferation of Moroccan arts. In, I, I don't think that you can find it in any other city but Tangier. You, of course, you find artists and galleries and all of that in Casablanca and Rabat. But in my view, Tangier has more artists, you know. Moroccan, but also it has European artists as well, and even uh, Latin American artists, you know, who live here. Their narrative of tourism also, you know, I mean, all kinds of narratives, not just one, you know. Uh, so, I mean, the old narrative that city had, it's still alive, I mean, uh, meaning before 1999, which is like a major date in the history of the city, because that's the uh, the beginning of the reign of Mohammed VI, who really focused on on city, and he wants to transform it in the way that I just described, meaning like very modern and very connected to Europe. But before that, it was a very marginal city, maybe the most marginal city, like in Morocco, uh, and it had the, the narrative about Tangier at that time was like you know it's a city of drug dealers, a city of sex work, you know. I did have the narrative also like of, of art and culture, but even art and culture were connected to, to drugs and, and sex, actually. So that narrative is still alive and well, you know, and it doesn't seem it's going to die anytime soon. You know, you talk about how Tanger is a mirror uh, in a way, but we're also thinking about it. Does that mirror infiltrate all of Tanger, or is it, what do you think? Because... There's still a, a divide between how the shores are, are treated 
as opposed to the inside, the inner part. So you talked about Casbah and even the Marina and the Medina. But also, when the moment you move away from that and move into this place, it's as if even Yemo was saying the other day that the, the, the architecture, the everything does not in any way will you to go inside. It keeps you in, a, in an axis along the shores. It's only when you go out and go up that you see how expansive Tangier is really. So I was wondering if there, is, there isn't a concerted effort to keep that mirroring just at the shores. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting question. I don't know if I can answer it, actually. I can speculate, but I'm not sure. My speculation will be really <laughs> informed. My, my first reaction is, like what you said, is, is true on almost every city like in the world. I mean, like, take New York. And New York has parts of them. Uh, there is New York, Manhattan, you know. And then, of course, there is the Brooklyn, Astoria, that even in the imagination of Americans, they are less n- New York than, than Manhattan. And then, of course, you have like neighborhoods in, in New York that look pretty much like, like a third world country, you know. So you have the same thing in Paris. I mean, like you have Paris and then you have sub. In, in Tangier, you have that too. I mean, like you have face, which is pretty much like what we see. I mean, like not Qasba, I mean, like uh, what I call downtown, even though Tangier has, you know, a couple of downtowns, not one. But this one is the main one, meaning uh, the boulevard. It has one like Malabata, you know, and then what you saw like a little bit outside of the of this center that doesn't look as European as uh, as the rest. I just want to follow up on your speculation a little bit. You're right. I mean, this is true of most uh, global cities in a sense. There's a there's a point that they seek to manicure to present a particular view to be sold. However, in our conversations, we have been struck by the location of this manicure. <laughs> that it's not incidental that we are at the border of Europe. <laughs> and that's the part that is Europeanized. Yeah, that's correct. And one of our acquaintances told us, you know, <laughs> quite lovely. He said, I said, I came from the airport and the roads were lovely. There were palm trees. <laughs> and he said, you know, it's a trick we pull. Just that one road that comes from the airport into this downtown, uh-uh. that's the manicured part, uh-uh. so you're not drawn to it. Uh-uh. So maybe also...
Und da ist ein Gatsch. 